Turning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show Hosted by a guy called Jumpy Ellie Tuning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show At JumpyEllie.com As always, a reminder, you can check out or download the PBS. Just search Pass Ball Show on Spotify, um, Apple Music, Amazon Music, YouTube. Always glad to be with you talking about everything going on in the world of baseball sports and unifying America. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Yankee brand today. I think it's something that has existed for many years and from those that may not understand exactly where I'm coming from with it, uh, I'm going to tell a story about the Yankees' history of dominance, but for everything that has allowed for that to happen. Got a couple of coaches in the NFL getting new jobs. Urban Meyer, hey, he did it. He took the Jacksonville job. I don't think Urban Meyer is going to take a job as a head football coach anywhere where he doesn't expect to win. And I think he does have all the resources in Jacksonville, and I think that team's going to be good down the road, led by their new quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. You bring a big-time coach in Aaron Urban Meyer, and I think he will succeed. The problem that I've said, and I, you heard me a couple shows ago, if you listen, Urban Meyer doesn't stick around for very long, and that is an issue. If Urban Meyer is not going to be there long-term, you know, is he going to be there for the next five years, the next ten years? Listen, Jacksonville might win a Super Bowl, but Urban Meyer might step away. And you look at his history of walking away from programs such as Florida, which he did more than once, and Ohio State after winning national championships there. I think it's very possible and almost probable that he's going to walk away from the Jacksonville Jaguars at some point. You got Arthur Smith, the latest Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator to get another a head coaching job in the National Football League, hired by the Atlanta Falcons. Is he going to be the next Matt LaFleur? You know, we got the PBS picks, which we're wearing out this week, which, by the way, if you want to know who not to pick for the games on a given Sunday, especially when it comes to the playoffs, follow the PBS picks. Um, first thing I want to talk about today, Miami Dolphins. There's a story out there that there's players that are not that they're not loving the thought or they don't have the trust in quarterback to a Tagliavoa. And they're entitled to their opinion. Problem is, is that the media allows for them to say whatever they want without having any accountability to it. And for anybody that's gone to college or even in high school. I mean, you put together a research paper, any sort of research paper, whether it's a lengthy one, whether it's a short one. If, if you're going to use information that is not your own, in other words, if you're not calculating or putting in your own opinion, you're using somebody else's information. They have the right to that information. You want to cite the fact that they're the ones that are giving you the information. Now, unfortunately, the same thing doesn't apply in the year 2020 or even the 21st century when it comes to reporters having to cite their sources for information of stories that they're reporting. And once again, you have an example of a ragtag bunch putting together a hearsay story with no actual evidence. Now, all it's going to do in regards to Tua Tagliavoa is, you know, beef up the fact that maybe he's not trusted. 
Maybe he doesn't have the locker room of the Miami Dolphins. And if Tua Tagliavoa is going to be the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins next year, it's going to create some doubt over whether he has the trust in his teammates. The problem is Tua Tagliavoa doesn't know exactly which of his teammates said this because the story was set up to protect those players. And I think it is pretty sad that we have to go to this route to get stories. There's so much information out there. There's so many things to write about, but we choose to write about things that don't have any legs to it. This story doesn't have any legs to it. This reporter could say that he's got three unnamed players or 10 unnamed players or 15 unnamed players, but it's not a story unless he actually puts a name on any of those players. Are they offensive players? Are they his skill players? Is it his left tackle? Is it his wide receiver? Is it his running back? Is it, is it his backup quarterback? Is it a defensive player? Are they special teams players? Are these players likely going to be back on the team next year? This is all information that perhaps the guy that wrote this story knew but he's just choosing not to take that information. Now, he's you know, agreed to this bond or whatever that he's created with these players, maybe a trust. Hey, I'm going to give you information if you promise me you're not going to tell anybody that I'm the one that gave you this information. Now, they make that handshake agreement, and that's between that reporter and that player. But once again, when you're talking about the, the bullshit reporting that's out there today, And I talk about how it applies to sports. Obviously, you could talk about how it applies to any other aspect of the news media. Problem is, is somebody could write a story about whatever they want without having to back up their sources to come up with the story. And this story in Miami, unfortunately, is about Tua Tagliavoa. It's putting him in a position where his teammates don't trust him. That's what the story says. Is Tua ever going to know which teammates don't trust him? Odds are those teammates that said they don't trust him probably don't have the balls to stand up and say it was them. If I call them out on Twitter, I promise you nobody's going to even respond. And if they do, nobody's going to admit to saying what was said. So my message is to any Miami Dolphins player, that gave this reporter the information saying that they don't trust Tua to be their quarterback in the future. They don't think that he's got the reins of this offense. Whatever it is that you said that not Tua and would make the general public believe that this is not the quarterback of the future for the Miami Dolphins, you know, stop being uh, stop being weak. And I was going to call you a name, but I, I'm not going to call any names on this show. Stop being weak. Stand up for what you really believe in. If that's what you believe, put your freaking name on it. That's the problem today. The media has created an avenue for players to say whatever they want without having to put their name on it. And it makes those players very weak. And in fact, I'm going to take it a step further. I don't trust anybody in the Miami Dolphins locker room because I think they're all weak. Every player on that team I could accuse of saying that they don't trust Tua Tagliavoa. And and that's not the issue at hand. The issue is not whether they trust him or not. It's the fact that they're not man enough to stand at the camera and admit that it's them that said what they said. 
Number two, you, you heard me kind of tease it before. Urban Meyer, great college football coach. Bowling Green, Utah, national championships in Florida and Ohio State. You knew it was a matter of time before he got on a football field. Odds probably led towards him taking another college job, but the perfect opportunity comes fourth with the Jacksonville Jaguars. A team with the worst record in the National Football League. They won in week one. They beat the Indianapolis Colts, who ended up making the playoffs, and then they lost their next 15 games, guaranteeing them the number one overall pick and Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence. The Jacksonville Jaguars have a head coaching vacancy. They're going to have Trevor Lawrence as their quarterback probably for the next 10 years or so. The best quarterback draft prospect since Andrew Luck. Now, unfortunately, Andrew Luck didn't have a good offensive line. He ended up retiring early. Never kind of became Peyton Manning like he was thought when he was, he was drafted. But you look at Trevor Lawrence and he's kind of in that same build. And listen, there'll be coaches, coaching candidates falling all over themselves for the opportunity to coach the Jacksonville Jaguars. I don't think there's any doubt that that's the hottest job, has been the hottest job on the market this year. There's six other ones. There's some decent ones. There's some good ones. But to take the Jaguars with Trevor Lawrence, all that extra cap space, the extra draft picks they got, you have a lot of capital, a lot of ability to control that team and kind of you know be your own dude. And Urban Meyer's going to do that. You hear the owner the other day basically saying that, you know, everything's going to run through Urban Meyer. He's going to tell his general manager what to do. So this is up to Urban Meyer. He wants to continue his legendary career. I think he's an all-time great college head coach. He wants to add a couple more notches to his belt. He's got a great opportunity with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Robert Sala, defensive coordinator, San Francisco 49ers taking a job with the New York Jets. Now, including their first season in 1960 as the New York Titans, the Jets have now hired 21 head coaches. 20 head coaches for the Jets. You add the New York Titans in 1960, it's 21 head coaches. 14 of them have been first-timers. And you wonder, John, is that really a problem? I think it could be. I think a lot of it depends on that actual head coach. What does he bring to the table? Is he a motivator? Are the players going to do backflips from him? If you look at the New York football giants and what they did with Joe Judge, they brought in a solid head coach, somebody that didn't have any experience, but he was a born leader, uh, a much different and superior leader to that of Pat Shermer and Ben McAdoo. It looks like he's got a pulse of the Giants organization, a pulse of the players, a a pulse of the staff that's assembled around him. There's accountability there. And you know what? If Robert Sala does the same thing with the Jets, then it's not going to matter that much that he doesn't have any head coaching experience. But you look at the likes of Sammy Baugh, Walt Michaels, Bill Walton, I'm sorry, not Bill Walton, Joe Walton. I I apologize. Bill Walton, of course, is the NBA basketball player, the Hall of Famer, the whole thing. Bruce Coslett, Pete Carroll, Al Groh, 
Herman Edwards, Eric Mangini, Rex Ryan, and now Robert Sala. Now listen, you look at this guy celebrating on the sidelines of the San Francisco 49ers, I think he's going to bring some energy. I think you're going to have a powerful press conference where Jets fans are going to get excited. But if you're the Jets, how many times do we go through the same thing? You know, it seems like just the other day, Rex Ryan was hired with all this energy and ambition and excitement. And things have gone downhill since. Jets made it to the AFC Championship game two years in a row in 2009 and 2010. That was well over 10 years ago. And, you know, the, the Todd Bowles years didn't work out so well. And the Adam Gase years were even worse. And it was just a couple of years ago, you hear about the excitement of Adam Gase and the fact that he, he was going to come and scare you with that stink guy. And this was a, a quarterback whisperer that was going to get through to Sam Darnold. The biggest concern I have is not just Sam Darnold, but who is going to be entrusted in that offense to make a decision on Sam Darnold? Is it... The general manager, Joe Douglas? Is it going to be Robert Sala, the head coach that has focused on defense for the first part of his career? He's just learning how to be a head coach. He sure as heck doesn't know how to run an offense. I'm sure he's not going to be trusted to evaluate whether Sam Darnold's going to be the quarterback of the future for the New York Jets. The Jets have the number two pick. They have an opportunity if they want. They could take Justin Fields. They could trade Sam Darnold and make whatever. You know, they could get a, another first-round draft pick, maybe a late first-round pick. But understand that the teams that are in the playoffs likely have a quarterback, number one. And number two, are are probably in, in a position where they're, the value of that late pick may not be what you expect it to be. So they're not going to take a Sam Darnold to give you, a, a, you know, the 26th pick. So odds are you may have to get multiple second rounders or a couple third rounders or a second and a third or something like that from a team that is going to look at Sam Darnold as the quarterback of the future. Now, the Jets hasn't, haven't been to the playoffs in two th- since 2010. And if I'm not mistaken, as I'm trying to spell Detroit, Detroit Lions, you know about their struggles, but you're looking at a team that's made the playoffs. So the Jets have gone the longest in the National Football League with the Cleveland Browns making the playoffs this year since going to the postseason. And like I said, you could have a great introductory press conference where Robert Sala looks great. He, he he'll get the energy. I'm sure he'll make a couple people laugh. He'll get the Jets fans excited because you know what, the Jets fans have very little to be excited about. But now the question is going to be, what are they going to do with the number two overall pick? Are they going to build around Sam Darnold? Are they going to trade Sam Darnold? I, I think they I think they need to get some influence in there. And the question is going to be, who is going to be part of Robert Sala's offensive staff? Who is going to be on the advisory board when it comes to the suggestion of whether Sam Darnold should be the quarterback of the future for the New York Jets? Arthur Smith, listen, he, he's done a very good job. You give him a lot of credit in Tennessee for resurrecting the career of Ryan Tannehill. You give him credit for the 
two-time or uh, multiple rushing champion in regards to Derrick Henry. He went from being a decent running back to the best running back in the league. They got an offense there. They got some good skill players. Johnu Smith has grown a little bit. I trust Arthur Smith as an offensive mind. Now you look at the Atlanta Falcons who have had a couple defensive coaches. You know, you look at the last two coaches, Dan Quinn, you know, before that was what? Mike Brown, I think. You're, you're looking at the, the Falcons that are kind of turning over a new leaf in regards to saying, all right, our quarterback now, and I'm sorry, I was talking about Mike Smith, who was there for two, four, six, seven years. Remember they had the Bobby Petrino experiment. And you heard me talk about it on the show last week. Uh, you know, Urban Meyer, could he be another Bobby Petrino? Could be a, he be another Nick Saban? You know, yeah, yeah, stick around for a year or so in the National Football League, and you realize that you're probably better off coaching college kids. Now, the Falcons added Todd Gurley this past year. Probably made their offense a little more dynamic. You got Julio Jones, you got Calvin Ridley, Matt Ryan. You know, he's going to be making a ton of money this year. The question is, are you going to hold on to him? Maybe you look to trade him if you have another team that's looking for a starting quarterback. Um, are the Falcons going to look a lot different? The problem is, since Matt Ryan's been that starting quarterback, Falcons haven't looked very much different. The defense has been up and down. The defense has been downright bad over the last couple of years. And their offense hasn't been much better. You, know, you, you had Roddy White to be there with Julio Jones. Remember when the Atlanta Falcons traded up to get Julio Jones, the wide receiver out of Alabama. You got another Alabama wide receiver in Devonta Smith, who a teammate trade up to try to get this year. I think he could absolutely be a top five pick in his draft. And guess what? Falcons, if I'm not mistaken, I think are picking at six or seven. So maybe, maybe they decide to get another receiver. Maybe they could be in a mix for a quarterback if they decide to trade Matt Ryan. But the question is going to be, Arthur Smith, as the head coach, he's going to be taking his philosophies when it comes to being an offensive coordinator and incorporating that into what he wants with the Atlanta Falcons. There's still four openings left. Third thing, we're going to get into the Yankee brand. And this, once again, Pretty similar to the, uh, you know, the, the plagiarism topic when it comes to the media and the media's uh, lack of interest in uh, using sources and saying, hey, this is my source for my information. They just want to put a story out there. I watched the New York Yankees and they did a great job signing Corey Kluber. They may have paid a little more than some other teams would just to get a deal done. And that's how, you, that's how you sign a free agent to a contract, by the way. You say, listen, I'm going to give you more than what another team could be expected to give you. $11 million, is that good enough? Do we got a deal? Corey Kluber and his agent say, okay. And there you go. The Yankees signed Corey Kluber to fill a major void in the Yankees rotation. No Masahiro Tanaka, no James Paxton. They need some support for Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's their ace. It'd be nice if you could get Corey Kluber, maybe not Cy Young Corey Kluber, but quality 200-inning, 30-start-making uh, Corey Kluber would be an absolute boom 
for the New York Yankees. Now, I go back to the DJ LeMahieu signing, which is not official yet, but it looks like the Yankees and LeMahieu are going to come to an agreement. LeMahieu getting maybe the money that he's looking for in a $90 million range, but the Yankees pushing that brand right in the face of DJ LeMahieu saying, you know, basically I can picture Brian Cashman saying, you want to be a Yankee? You're going to have to do it our way. And Brian Cashman's been doing this for years. Brian Cashman did this with Bernie Williams, and it didn't work out. He said, hey, you want to be a Yankee? You're going to have to come in on a minor league contract. Bernie Williams said, screw you. Bernie Williams walked away. Bernie Williams said, listen, I basically helped bring this franchise back to competitive baseball. You say core four, and you don't say my name in it. Where would the Yankees be without Bernie Williams? And this is how you treat me on my way out. You can't even give me a major league contract. And you've seen Brian Cashman do this in regards to other general managers, whether he bullies a Theo Epstein into making a trade for Starling Castro, whether he bullies the Cincinnati Reds and Dick Williams into a trade for Araldis Chapman. Basically throws, hey, we're the Yankees. We can do whatever the hell we want. And as long as there's teams that are willing to trade with the Yankees and not admit to the fact that they're being bullied and free agents continue to say, you know what, I want to be a Yankee, so I'm going to do whatever the hell Brian Cashman says. And in DJ LeMayu's case, it's becoming a very undervalued player over the next six years. He signed a two-year, $24 million contract with the Yankees, basically not knowing how much he had in a tank. He was coming from Colorado. He won a batting title there. Coors Field, the whole thing. How is it going to work out with the New York Yankees? He goes there, and he's one of the best players in the American League for the course of two years. The Yankees got the $12 million per year and beyond in regards to the performance of DJ LeMahieu. He wins the batting title in the American League last year. And how does he get rewarded? Now, you may say if you're, you know, John Q. Public, a $3 million raise would be great. Not in the world of baseball. Not when you were an undervalued $12 million a year player that was one of the top players in the American League over the past two years. And to pay DJ LeMahieu $15 million over the next six years is not fair to DJ LeMahieu. And you may go year one, year two, year three. He may be severely undervalued, and maybe he gets a little bit older in year four, year five, and year six, and you start talking about, hey, maybe the, maybe the years are a little bit of what has gotten in the way of this contract. Now, the Yankees want to do this. You understand why it makes sense for them, because they want to stay under the luxury tax threshold. And having a $15 million average annual value on DJ LeMahieu's contract makes that more feasible, not just for this year, but for down the road. I have a problem with DJ LeMahieu not having the balls to say, I know I could get more money from somewhere else. And the, the problem, we know it exists out there that nobody wants to take the Toronto Blue Jays money. I want to know how much DJ LeMahieu left on the table with the Toronto Blue Jays. Are we talking about a five-year, $120 million contract or $125? Are we looking at $25 million a year? How much money did he leave on the table to stay with the New York Yankees? And once again, that's his decision. He could say no. He could grow a set 
and say that I'm worth more money and I'm going to get more money on this market. And Brian Cashman could say, hey, we're going to walk away. We're going to go focus our attention on somebody else. But as long as there's players that are taking whatever the Yankees are offering because it's the Yankees, Brian Cashman's going to continue to bully players and teams like he has over the past 20 years. Now, when it comes to the Yankee brand, there's always been an advantage that the Yankees have had since the days of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And, of course, it had to start from somewhere. And, of course, the deal that the Yankees made with Red Sox and owner Harry Frizzay to send the then pitcher turned outfielder Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $125,000. So Harry Frizzay could finance, uh, was it No No Nouette? A play, a Broadway play. Now, that got things started. Now, Harry Frazee didn't know that Babe Ruth was going to revolutionize the game of baseball. He had hit some home runs in 1919. He led the league with 29. But we're still in the dead ball era. The game is still stolen bases, hitting the ball on the ground, getting doubles and triples, and strong enough starting pitching. Babe Ruth hits home runs in the 50s and the 60s and basically takes over the 1920s and is the best baseball player, offensive position player to ever play in Major League Baseball history. Harry Frazee didn't know that would happen. But that starts the Yankees and their reputation that they get as a winning franchise. There's Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig that leads to the best players in amateur baseball whether they're high school or colleges, they want to play for the Yankees. Joe DiMaggio wants to play for the Yankees. Bill Dickey wants to play for the Yankees. Eventually, Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra want to play for the Yankees. You know why? Because the Yankees have that reputation of winning. They start winning in 1923 and 27 and 28 and 32. And then when Joe D leads them to the four straight World Series championships from 1936 to 1939, all of a sudden, the Yankees build this credibility, and it's the 40s and the 50s and the 60s where every good player wants to sign with the Yankees. And the Yankees have that brand where the Yankees, we win. Why would you not want to play for us? And then guess what happens? Was it 1964, 1965? MLB says we got to be fair. We got to come up with a Major League Baseball draft to make it fair for every team to have the opportunity to play. I'm sorry, every team to have the same opportunity to get the best amateur players. They can't just all frolic to the Yankees because they're the Yankees. So this process, which starts in 1965, all, all of a sudden, coincidentally, and obviously not coincidentally, as I'm saying it, coincides with the Yankees' worst stretch in the history of their franchise. Because you know what? They can't pick and choose the best players in baseball anymore. The top players go to the worst teams. Reggie Jackson, who I'm sure would have loved to come to the Yankees. Tom Seaver, I'm sure would have loved to play for the Yankees. All of a sudden, they got to go to lesser clubs because of the draft. Yankees lose 
towards the mid to late 60s, the early part of the 70s. And then they start getting things together when George buys the club in what, 73, 74? And George Steinbrenner says, hey, there's this thing coming up, the Peter Seitz decision. And if he decides that Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally are free agents because they chose to play their option year instead of signing a new contract, they decided to play a year for free. If Peter Seitz makes that decision, then there's going to be free agency in Major League Baseball. Players are going to be free agents. And guess what? The team with the most money can go out there and sign whoever they want. And George Steinbrenner and the New York Yankees did that from the latter part of the 1970s into the 80s and the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s. Of course, until George's death in 2011. Now, once again, the Yankee brand, in this, in this case, was about the money. The Yankees had more money than any team in Major League Baseball. George Steinbrenner, the owner, was going to make sure that he went out of his way to make sure he had he put a best the best team on the field year after year after year. Every year, the New York Yankees were going to be expected to be competing for a World Series championship. It didn't work that much in the 80s, but the Yankees had a team that was right there every single year. They didn't get the job done. That's why Billy Martin was fired five times. Because the, the talent existed on the field. For some reason, they couldn't get themselves into the playoffs. A lot of second-place finishes. Some really good teams in the 1980s with the New York Yankees. So you, you watch what ends up happening. And, of course, George gets suspended. You know, the you know, Howie Spira thing. The digging dirt on uh, Dave Winfield. Gene Michael gets a chance to run the Yankees, build some good young players. There's a young outfielder by the name of Bernie Williams, who I said is the most underrated Yankee in the history of the franchise. There's Derek Jeter. There's Mariano Rivera. And the next thing you know, Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada are there, and the Yankees are building a dynasty out of their own farm system. They add free agents to it, and the Yankees, once again, even in years where the Yankees don't win the World Series, which I know 2021 is going to be 12 years, listen, they're in it every year. The opportunity for the Yankees to win a World Series is right there in front of them every year. And a lot of it has to do with the reputation of the Yankees and the Yankee brand. You can talk about how they want to stay under the luxury tax threshold. Hal Steinbrenner is not like his father, George. He's not going to spend aimlessly. He's going to... Keep the team down to a budget, a budget in which Brian Cashman is going to have to keep. But Brian Cashman is going to have a job for life if he continues to bully his players and the executives of other teams into getting what he wants. If he can build the Yankees team in a way that's almost unfair for other teams, then he's going to he's basically going to have a job until he decides that he doesn't want it anymore. And I'll tell you this, for those that clamor every now and then, and say Brian Cashman, you know, maybe his time has come. He's not going anywhere. A little bit of a recap of the show today. And as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church of School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Of course, you can download the Past Ball Show on Apple Music, on Spotify, on YouTube, as well as Amazon Music. We talked about the Miami Dolphins. 
do they have the players, a lack of interest or a trust in their quarterback to a Tagliavella, the quarterback out of Alabama, the tank for Tua, which the Dolphins looked like they were doing. They ended up getting the sixth overall pick. And guess who's still on the board? Tua Tagliavella. Now, Kyler Murray went in that draft. So did Justin Herbert. So you're looking at some quarterbacks that probably passed him in regards to their ranking and maybe the trust of the other teams when it came to, to draft these type of players. Now, Tua had an opportunity to play last year, and I thought, did okay. I don't think he necessarily distinguished himself as a starter, and that may not be fair to judge him off of one season. He made five starts. He, uh, he, I'm sorry, how many starts did he make? He made nine starts. Was team was six and three in those nine starts. The Dolphins just missed out on the playoffs. By the way, won ten games in Brian Flores' second season. And remember, the Dolphins were considered one of the worst teams going into the 2019 season, and they went out there and Brian Flores' second season won ten games. And by the way, with a roster that, yes, you know, Xavier Howard's good. You know, they got some good players here and there, but they don't have a ton of star power. Tua had a 64% completion percentage. He had a quarterback rating of 87.1. Now, the completion percentage is good. Quarterback rating could use a little bit more work. Threw 11 touchdowns, five interceptions. Was 186 of 290 for 1,814 yards. Averaged just under 200 yards per game. Now, there's going to be a little pressure on Tua next year. There's no question about it. And this reporting aside, it, it doesn't hide from the fact that the Miami Dolphins are going to have to make a decision at some point whether Tua is going to be the quarterback for the next five years or if maybe they want to bring somebody in to push him a little bit, is year two as being a starter, is that time enough to push for another quality quarterback to be in there to give him a hard time? I, I know it's a little tough. And, you know, you think of Justin Herbert and you think of Joe Burrow and those guys went out there and they, they performed right off the bat. There's no doubt that Burrow, even though he got hurt and missed the end of the season in Cincinnati, he's going to be the quarterback going forward there. Justin Herbert's going to be the quarterback of the Los Angeles Chargers, regardless of who they hire as their head coach. Is there doubt about Tua? Sure. But once again, in the 20, the first century type of reporting, a reporter could ask questions from an anonymous standpoint, use those answers in the story, and not have to cite which players said it. And if I'm Tua, I want to know who the hell said it. Is it my star wide receiver? Is it my offensive lineman? Are they even players on the offense? Are they players that are going to be on the team next year? Does my whole team feel that way? Certainly things that aren't going to help a young quarterback while he's trying to get things together. Spoke about Urban Meyer. 
I have a doubt that Urban Meyer is going to stick around a long time in Jacksonville. And listen, he might take him to the promised land. With Trevor Lawrence and the cap space and the roster control, Urban Meyer, I have no doubt he could build a winner in Jacksonville. Certainly in that area, that's where he wants to be. That's where he starred as the head football coach in Florida with the Gators. I'm worried he ain't going to stick around that long. And what happens when Urban Meyer has that first season where he goes 6-10? and 10? Maybe it won't be right away. Maybe Trevor Lawrence and the cap space and the ability to in, have an influx of good players. Maybe they have success right away. At first 6-10 and 10 season, I think he's going to be out. And if it comes in year one, I don't know how much longer Urban Meyer is going to want to stay there. He's going to become the next Bobby Petrino. He's going to become the next Nick Saban. And listen, Nick Saban, you you can make a case he's the best college football coach in the history of the sport. He's better than Bear Bryant. He's won seven national championships. Wasn't a very good NFL head coach. Didn't stick around for that long. The Yankee brand. I wanted to get into that, and we spoke about that earlier. There's a history of the Yankees kind of using that emblem and their history and their success to lure players in, not only to lure players in, but to get them to come to their own terms. Brian Cashman is the protector of the Yankee brand. And when he signs DJ LeMahieu to a six-year, $90 million contract, knowing very well that DJ LeMahieu is going to be underpaid for at least the next three years. That's the power of the brand. And when he can make a trade with the Chicago Cubs, he could get Starlin Castro for nothing. He could get Araldis Chapman for nothing. And actually make trades with other Major League Baseball teams and not have to give back anything close to worthy compensation. You know he's got the power of the Yankee brand. And the Yankee brand goes back to the days of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And Joe DiMaggio joins the Yankees because of Ruth and Gehrig. And Yogi Berra joins the Yankees because of Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio. Mickey Mantle joins the Yankees because of DiMaggio and Ruth and Gehrig and Berra. And yada, yada, yada. All the way until we get to 1965 and the Major League Baseball institution of its draft. And guess what? It coincides with the worst run in the history of the New York Yankees franchise. From 1965 to 1977, I'm sorry, 75, the Yankees don't make the playoffs. They have some of the worst and leanest years in the history of the franchise. You know why? Because they can't control where the best players go anymore. The best players go into the draft. Usually the teams with the worst record end up with the highest picks. That's usually how that works. That's how it's always worked in baseball. And the Yankees struggle for a while until free agency. George Steinbrenner gets into it, says, I'm going to spend everything that needs to be spent to make sure I have the best players on the field all the time with the Yankees. And guess what? They win in 77 and 78 after getting to the World Series in 76. They're back to the World Series in 81. Even though they don't make the playoffs for the rest of the 1980s, they have the most wins in the American League through that entire decade. And it isn't until George 
ends up getting himself into trouble with the league and gets suspended that Gene Michael comes in there and actually does a little bit of a Yankee rebuild. Similar to what Brian Cashman did in 2015, 2016, you know, the Gary Sanchez's and the Aaron judges and the Glaber Torres's kind of getting added to the mix, young talent. Yankees are always going to be in a position to succeed. And I can't imagine the Yankees having a losing season unless they have injuries that are even more than what we've seen over the last three years or so. There really hasn't been a team in Major League Baseball that's been hit with as much injuries as the New York Yankees in the last three years. So you have to talk about even worse injuries than that to set this team back. There's no way that they're going to finish with a 500 or less record. This is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. And once again, a reminder, you can follow the Passball Show on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, and Amazon Music. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.